Today's podcast is brought to you by Isoway Sports, the sports range for athletes looking for supplements that are free from all artificial colours, flavours, sweeteners and added fructose. Intense physical training programs place significantly higher nutritional demands on sports people, and Isoway Sports are committed to providing pure nutritional ingredients that are truly complementary to a healthy, active lifestyle. You can visit isoasports.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today, all the way from sunny Lismore, is Chris Oliver. Chris has a Master's in Ag Science, Nutrition and Public Health, and he's a registered nutritionist. Importantly, he's the Research Director of the Blackmores Institute, and he's very interested in body composition and ageing amongst a wealth, and I mean a wealth of other things, because every couple of weeks I'll sit down and I'll sift through the legion of study articles, synopses and abstracts that Chris sends through to tease us to make our brains swim. So I'd like to welcome you heartily to FX Medicine, Chris. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Now, Chris, today we're going to be talking about the importance of sarcopenia and how important it is to maintain a healthy muscle mass for healthy ageing and longevity. So this has been an area of interest for you for a long time, yes? Yeah, it has been, yes. Just before we go into that, can I just ask you to give our listeners a little bit of background into your your education and, and what drew you to nutrition from ag science? Um, well, I've always been interested in nutrition, um, but coming from a family that has a farming background, um, I did ag science. I don't have a master's in ag science. I have a master's in public health, but just got a degree in ag science. Gotcha. But, um, from a farming background, that's what I initially wanted to do. But actually, in that year, in my final year of ag science, I actually did a, a, a small trial on vitamin C and, and glucose in humans. And mm. that's like just spurred me on, interestingly, into to wanting to work further in nutrition. So I sort of went from that course to work for Blackmores um, and then went back and did nutrition at uni um, and then went back to Blackmores, but via uh, working in um, HIV research for three or four years. Oh, really? That's where I like, encountered doing work in body composition, and that's really sparked my interest since then. Now, that's, that's crucial in HIV because the extremely toxic, poisonous drugs that they have to give these HIV sufferers, they have to work that out from muscle mass, not body mass, correct? Um, to be honest, where they are with quad therapy and all that kind of thing is um, that I, I, I was there in the ni- early or the late 1980s, mm. And um, at oh, that gosh. stage, really, all they had was, you know, AZT was just the only thing that was on, yeah. the, on the go at that point. Um, but one of the critical things at that juncture was um, this thing called HIV wasting syndrome. And ah. it was people, you know, like just losing a lot of muscle and often being the cause of death, if you know what I mean, yeah. in, HIV, in AIDS, AIDS patients. So we actually did a like a longitudinal study looking at the um, at body, comp- body composition in um, people who were relatively asymptomatic and just seeing whether there were changes in, in body composition preceding uh, the onset of full AIDS, yeah. Uh, okay, so basically their body composition affecting their immunity. Well, the, the theory was, and I think we had a little bit of evidence, so it was controversial, is that, um, that there may have been changes to muscle mass 
uh, preceding them actually their decline in um, T cell uh, counts and on, before the onset even of other disease. If you're right, so they could. And, and looking back on it, it, could be that there may be it just could have been a generalised high inflammatory state. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, driving things uh, at that stage, we actually didn't have a look at a whole lot of inflammatory markers. But um, yeah, so that, that was like a very interesting period. And then I guess after that, seeing the impact of muscle on on um, people's particularly their quality of life, you know, and particularly um, a lot of the, uh, the the patients we had at that point, um, gay men were very body conscious, and to lose that condition is very upsetting. Um, but then to translate that later on, um, just with my elderly parents and other elderly um, relatives, and that, and looking at the impact of uh, aging upon body muscle function, quality of life was also I saw, began to draw on the dots and saying, well, you know, this is just not in uh, diseases like HIV or cancer, but this is an, an ageing thing. And it was around that time, actually, that, uh, that someone actually coined the term sarcopenia okay. uh, to describe it. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that term, sarcopenia. What exactly is it? Well, it's, it's originally it was... Um, it's, well, I'll just give you a definition. It's characterised by progressive... Pardon me, and generalised loss of skeletal muscle mass and strength with a risk of adverse outcomes such as physical disability, poor quality of life and death. And I guess the important thing is originally the sarcopenia was really related around muscle mass, but now it is the combination of muscle mass and strength, if you know what I mean, which is important. Right. Yep. Because the, the two, in, when in, in ageing in particular, there is um, a disconnect between loss of muscle mass and muscle strength and power. So you lose strength and power a lot more rapidly than you do muscle mass. Oh, right. Okay. So functionally, you may actually be more impaired. So, but, And it's always difficult sometimes to measure muscle mass, as you know. So. Does that equate with a change in uh, fibre type? You know, the white and the red, fast, fast uh, yes, slow twitch? So, um, in, well, it, this is the interesting part. So if you were to have a look at um, when they feel so that you lose muscle, so you do globally... Mm. But there's more of a loss of um, appendicular muscle, which is the arms and legs. Yep. And there's more of a loss of leg muscle. Uh, within the leg muscle, there's more of a loss of the thigh muscles. Within the thigh muscles, there's more of a loss of the quads. And in the quads, it's probably the rectus femoris, which you lose more. And it's those type 2 fibres which seem to be lost uh, more or, and, and, and or a decrease in size. Again, the science around whether they're decreasing or decreasing number or sizes. Um, depends what paper you read, but there's definitely a change in the type of of fibre type, which is related to particularly to power, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. so let's talk about you know how prevalent this is as a condition. And uh, the first things that come to mind are we're an ageing population and we're a growing population in our girth, and that ain't muscle. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's two interesting points there. So the prevalent, but unfortunately we've died. It's a bit like frailty. Everyone everyone knows what a frail person looks like. Yeah. Trying to define it medically is very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's the same with sarcopenia. So there have been about four or five different position papers put out as to what sarco- how you measure it and uh-huh. how you define it. Yeah. And the prevalence really can be quite low or quite high depending upon the um, the type of diagnosis that is used, if you know what I mean, or the thresholds. Now, for me personally, what I'm always thinking about is trying to be at the top of the cliff, not at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> and so whilst sarcopenia, as a, and we need like that medical definition because um, if you're going to do drug trials or interventions mm. or get 
um, health fund interventions about it. You need so, so some kind of medical diagnosis, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah that's right. And that's still not clear at this point as to what it is. Though, as I was saying, there's, there's different definitions. But the thing with ageing is to try and stop people moving to that functional impairment. So to my mind is that you can actually have, um, before you get to sarcopenia, you can still have a fair bit of loss of quality of life before you get medically diagnosed with, as being impaired, if you know what I mean, anyway. So, so yeah, I, the, I, I guess medical treatment would be rather confounding because if they don't have a black box to put it in, it's kind of like um, growing pains. How do you treat growing pains from an, uh, an evidence-based um, yep. beginning if you haven't got a clear definition of what growing pains yeah. is? There's no medical term for it. It's, yeah, it comes back to what you're saying, that the growing girth is everything as well, is that normally what happens is that People just assume it's just ageing, if you know what I mean. Well, it is related to ageing. There's no doubt about it. Mm. But um, people can come into the doctor, sit down, and they appear to be well. They might be a bit overweight. You're talking about increasing in our, our weight as a, as a nation. But unfortunately, they don't look at the muscle component. And I think that's my big push is to say that we shouldn't be worried about body weight. We shouldn't be worried so much about being overweight when, when people are elderly. It's really the muscle component we need to focus on. Yeah. Um, because if you focus just on the fat, you're going to—it's not that that's really going to drive their morbidity, and mortality later in life. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So the, um, the the trend is basically if, if you're overweight or obese in middle age, no, definitely that's not good. Or from young age, but for eld- elderly people, that's where it becomes quite confounding. Is that there's a lot of work to show that if you're probably overweight as an elderly person and acquired that over time rather than being progressively overweight since middle age, mm. you're probably going to be better off. And um, some of the studies would suggest that's possibly because those people who are elderly with normal BMI actually have quite low muscle mass. Right. Because what can happen over ageing is that you can actually maintain exactly the same weight but be losing muscle and gaining fat. Right. So, BMI slight like loses its effectiveness as a as a measure. It's more of a more of a measure of muscle in the elderly than it is, and and in the younger people, it's more of a, probably of an index of um, adiposity. Though, right, I have to stress that's on a population basis, and it's a bit fraught with danger to use it as a, on an individual basis anytime. So, just going back to that muscle versus fat ratio, if you like, yep. um, I I'd, I want to just check myself and make sure that what I'm saying is still correct. You know, what I seem to recall is that um, in your younger years, you could grow muscle cells and divide them and, and multiply them. And same with fat cells. If you had a, a high fat diet, then you could actually multiply the, uh, the number of fat cells in your body. But at a certain stage, they basically became static. You had that number set for life. You could now um, adjust the size of those cells, whether they be muscles or fat, but you couldn't change the number. Is that still correct, or are we? Is that an old theory? Um, you got me there. Well, I think with adipose tissue, I think that was the theory, but mm. I think under, and I think there is a belief now, and I'd, I, I'm, you have you got me on on, um, on on question time here, whether that I think you still can have increased uh, fat cells. Um, but I think muscle, yeah, I think you do, like, you peak out. And, and I just want to say to, to your listeners is that your your peak uh, muscle mass power strength is in your 30s. So you actually begin to decline after you're in, in your 30s. So you have a very slight decline, which begins to become more rapid as you age. So Damn um, it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One so word, I say to people, damn you're it. over 30, you're, you're already on the slide <laughs> down. So unless you're intervening... That, that's what I was saying before about being on the top of the cliff, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 
we really got to get people start thinking about it in their 30s, 40s, particularly 50s. If you're not doing resistance training, that kind of thing, after 50s and looking after your diet, you know, you could be on a real slippery slope later on and you need to get that, um, that muscle maintenance, um, muscle quality curve um, high early, if you know what I mean, so you don't fall into disability later on. That's, that's, you will decline, but if you're at a higher level, you're not likely to fall into disability. And I think that's deadly important because what you pointed out, we're living longer, but we're going to live with a lot more disability, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We're not dying from the killer diseases now. We're keeping people alive. Yeah, exactly I mean, right. You know, diabetes, I, I, I will always remember um, when I was nursing, if you were 40 and you came in with type 2 diabetes, it was like, my God, what have you been doing, man? You know, mm. um, now I, I think I remember a paper saying the mean age of diagnosis, this was admittedly in Auckland, so there's um, yeah. some some cultural issues there, but um, um, the mean age of diagnosis of diabetes was 15 years of age. 15 mm. years of age. I, could, I was dumbfounded. Well, this, this slide fits in. If you, um, the presentation I gave the other day, I put up some slides to show that in the last, you know, in the last you know, 30, 40 years, whilst our, our weight, everyone's concentrated on the obesity epidemic, um, what's also occurring is at the same weight, the same BMI, even in children, mm. um, they're getting fatter. Yeah. Something has to give, and that's muscle. So we're becoming a nation, even of our children, of the muscle um, declining. Yeah. Now, I actually put a letter into a journal of cachexia and sarcopenia saying, you know, that this is not going to bode well for diabetes. If you know what I mean. We, will gonna, we are going to see, and it oh. sounds like we already are seeing, Absolutely. diabetes, which is going to be diagnosed earlier because the, the muscle quality is not there. Mm. It's the biggest disposal unit of, of uh, glucose, as you know. Mm. And if you don't have good muscle quality, you're up against the curve to start with. Yeah. So, um, and people are carrying around a lot more weight. Um, made, sorry, they may be the same weight, but they're actually carrying less muscle. Though people always seem to concentrate, they're carrying more fat. <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, I think for me, the story is you've got to work on the muscle quality um, if you're going to be successful on that. As the saying, you know, that muscle is the biggest disposal unit of, of glucose. So. Yeah. You talk about the various muscles, and I, I really did like that. Um, that gradation that you made of the various, so whether it's appendicular uh, muscle and then the various types of the muscles and the various, um, uh, sorry, the groups of muscles and then the actual muscles that are degraded quicker than others. So are there then certain exercises that would be more attuned to maintaining these muscles? And I'm thinking here about things like yoga, um, well, you, 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 you're talking to a person who's yoga challenged, Andrew. So. <laughs> Me too, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> that in meditation, I'd love to do it, but I'm just I'm not that flexible. It just looks unco when I do it, mate. It's, uh... Yeah, to totally with me. Um, yeah, well, the thing is, it, the, the interest in the legs for me in particular is that there are a lot of um, studies relating leg power leg muscle to either diabetes, cognition. There's that interesting study done not so long ago with elderly twins where they followed their cognition over 10 years. And those those are the twins with the greater leg power had you know, better cognitive outcomes, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So, and if the reason why is probably because of mobility, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's, it's the biggest muscle area. And I've got to say in our HIV study, that's what we seem to indicate is that there seemed to be a loss of leg muscle. So 
when we used to get the guys to strip off the door their anthropometrics, even though that they were clinically well, sometimes you could just look and go, mate, there's something not right with your leg muscles, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's that obvious. So there is something that's the biggest area of, uh, uh, of muscle. And to go back to it as to why is because the body needs, it'll be breaking down that muscle to get the amino acids, to help the immune system, to help the enzymes, to help everything else, if you know what I mean. Yeah. that constant turnover all the time and requirement, particularly if you're probably in an inflammatory state. So, yeah, it could be just being mobile, if you know what I mean. So if you're not mobile, if you're sitting in a chair all day and you can't get out, you can't go and play bowls of your friends, go shopping, there's just a whole lot of things here about social isolation. Yeah. And once you're not moving, you get that like spiral of um, inactivity, less muscle, uh, less activity, less muscle. It's not good. So, so I, I remember reading some time ago about um, some various ways of testing for body composition, and yep. I think one of the more sensitive was the DEXA scan, whereas there's the bioimpedance, but then there's various machines with bioimpedance. And yeah. I, I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, but something like the four channel and then there's versus the 12 channel. The 12 channel is the big expensive machine that the AIDS wards use to calculate muscle mass yeah. so they can calculate um, drug look, they're doses. They're all fraught with danger. So DEXA yeah. is, um, even if it's DEXA, you know, not so long ago they were saying if you're going to get your bone, and, and it's been used obviously for osteoporosis and bone uh, mineral density measurements. Yep that you'd actually have to go back and get remeasured, not on the same brand, but even on the same machine. There's that much variability. Yeah, right. So it's kind of like a so, your scales or so a peak muscle, flow meter. Yeah, so with muscle, the problem is is that it'll pick up. It actually measures indirectly uh, uh, bone mineral density uh, and fat, and then it backs that out to give you an estimate of soft tissue. Now, that soft tissue, it can tell you nothing about the quality of that soft tissue. So right. you can have... You can have two people with exactly the same soft tissue in, in that particular places. One's absolutely chockers full of fat. The other's beautiful, clean muscle. And that was, I think, the other, just to pick up one of right. your previous points about um, cells multiplying, is that there's that ectopic fat deposition. So once the, the body can't you know, hypertrophy its fat cells anymore, it begins to look other places to put it, mm -hmm. and that goes into visceral tissue and all that kind of thing, but it also sticks it into muscle. And that, also, that can have a real impact on muscle quality. Ah, uh, I see. So now, just with the BIA, the same thing. There are many different brands. Unfortunately, they all in, well, say, well, unfortunately, a lot of them indirectly use measurements of muscle mass at a post based on you know, them being um, you know, other indirect measurements like DEXA, under, underwater weighing, things like that. Yep. But now they've got this thing where they're actually looking at impedance reactance measurements. Um, in themselves, and they may be actually more accurate. So we want to move away from equations because you'd have to have an equation in your BI, BIA machine, yep. which is related to the gender, the age, and even the, the medical yeah. condition of the person. So, yeah, just a lot of them are not accurate because the, the, they're invalidated against the population they need to measure against. That, that was the that, that was my always my issue with it is that, you know, where is the normograph and how many people is it based on? If it's based on a couple yeah, of hundred that's people, that's problem. not a population so, thing. Yeah, if yeah. you can use the raw data and there's that's uh, you know, where a lot of the new, newer machines give that uh, kind of thing out, mm. and that's the um, the area I think I think personally that they actually will probably be more useful later on because they're going to be cheap. Um, but if, as long as the we're using the data correctly, and there obviously needs to be more work done on that, but use the raw data. 
we may actually get a lot more clinical benefit out of derived data, if you know what I mean. Okay, so, so how can clinicians measure? What what should they be doing? What, what well, this is the, you know, the, the, the question, and, and I'm, I love anything about body composition. However, um, I think what we really need to do um, is just it's function, if you know what I mean. So regardless of what turns up on a, on a DEXA or whatever, um, if that person can or can't get out of a chair, walk six metres. So there's a whole lot of time tests that are done now in nursing homes yep. for people, timed up and goes, you know, chair stands, all that kind of thing. They're the functional outcomes, which I think are really important. But what we need, and grip strength is the other one that I think is really important to do, and we need to start doing this on a serial basis. So rather than saying, I pulled, you know, 30 kilograms or whatever, what does that mean? We need to start measuring that in people from their 30s onwards, if you know what I mean. Yep. Dead cheap to do, reliable, all that kind of thing. We can actually begin to track people and their and their and their strength measurements. So for younger people, it might be push-ups or doing some other work. But for older people, there's a whole battery of tests out now that people can use, which are cheap as chips and easy to do. And and I guess if you wanted a motivator so that they had maximal grip strength, you could get them to hold onto a, a pole while they're on the edge of a cliff. Just um, kidding. It would be really good when, when you're stamping on their fingers as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking. So you, did, you... you did make a good point there. Is that um, with often when people talk, if you go to talk to a doctor about um, uh, diet and exercise, it's often, Andrew, as you know, it's seen as even in diabetes, it's seen as pejorative terms. You yeah. Know what I mean, that, yeah. Uh, diet and exercise. This is all we're talking about is diet and exercise. Yeah, diet exercise. If you start talking about quality of life. And so you really, well, you want to keep going to bowls, you want to keep playing golf, going on that walking holiday, trekking, whatever you want to do, walking to the shops. Um, because we're living longer with this chronic disability thing, there's a lot to be said as a motivator for people. Move away from weight, obesity, whatever, and talk about quality of life, if you know what I mean. So, I, I, would, I would add to that for all of our clinicians listening out there is that always put a quality of life parameter into your management goals. It can't just be about biological or biochemical parameters. It's got to be about yeah. what that patient needs to or wants to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think if they, um, you know, if they concentrate on muscle quality, diet, diet and exercise, they'll see. I mean, there's no doubt. You know, my wife's a physio as well, and you speak to other exercise physiologists or whatever who deal in this area, that people can get highly motivated when, they're, you know, when they have been housebound. They can move up a level, get more freedom you know, to do things and um, you know, go out gardening, pick up the kids, all, you know, all those things that they, they thought they'd lost, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And what we do know is uh, that the great work that you know, Professor uh, Fred Taroni Singh um, has done, she's out at Lipcomb now, uh, University of Sydney, she showed ages ago, she had studies where they had people up to the age of 96 doing resistance training and getting great results, mm. if you know what I mean. So and, and indeed, is, even the if they institute that, in all ages and in all conditions. You yeah, know what I mean? and even if they start that later on in life, they can regain mobility. Yep. They can regain effects. Yeah, yep. muscle is very plastic. Yeah. So we're talking about muscle, and we're talking about protein. So what about putting just more protein in? Is it as simple as that? Uh, it isn't. It isn't. There's no doubt. I, I think that we're probably uh, everyone seems to think that we have too much protein in our diets, but for the elderly their protein requirements are actually higher than younger people. Um, but the problem is wow. it usually it's, it's occurring at the same time that their energy intake is declining. Right. So that the, um, I've just got a graph here that I'll just um, see if I can find. But if you worked out how much protein they actually required, um, I've got one here. It says 
For a male 31 to 50, they need 4.7 grams of protein per 1,000 kilojoules of intake. But for a male or female greater than 70 years of age, it's 7 grams of protein per 1,000 kilojoules. So there's a real um, need, you know, to get more protein in. However, they're usually eating less, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And that, and, that and, that's, an and that's timed with, you know, lesser appetite, less taste sensation as you Absolutely. age, all that sort of thing. But, yeah. but we, we, you know, we, I think one of the points that we need to, to be clear on is that that's when we, they've already got sarcopenia. We need to be addressing these patients before they have these issues. So we, we need to be talking to patients in their 30s before they're over the hill, before they're yeah. teetering on the edge of that cliff. So yeah. you're talking about measuring grip strength early. Yep. Looking at flexibility and other parameters of lifestyle early, and what should they be doing earlier with regards to diet? Uh, I think it's just you know anything that's a, a good diet, and we can discuss what you know, based on Mediterranean diet, whatever. Yeah, um, the, the the low pasta Mediterranean diet that is. The actual the actual Mediterranean diet, not our westernised bastardised yeah, attempt yeah. at it. Yeah. Yeah, and high and, and you know one of the interesting thing is that in the, some studies of elderly people, they're shown that omega three supplements can actually increase muscle strength and mass even without resistance training. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So things like vitamin D essential because it's really important for yeah. muscle strength. So vitamin D is as much a muscle vitamin as it is a bone muscle uh, a bone vitamin. Yes. Yes. So they're just the, the common things, but really, um, it's ex- to me, it's the exercise, if you know what I mean. So yeah. we really got to get people thinking about um, exercising. As I'm saying, once you're 50 on, some form of resistance training combined with whatever physical activity you want to do needs almost to be mandatory, if you know what I mean. If you're not using your muscles, a contraction a, contraction a day keeps the doctor away, Andrew, I'd say. <laughs> so uh, we really need to... And the beauty about resistance training is it can be done at home. You can use you know, dumbbells and bands. You can use kettles. You Shopping. can use machines. Yeah. There's just so many different ways you can do it, if yeah. you know what I mean. Beer bottles excluded. It does not mean reaching, a, for, reaching for a heavier bottle of wine. Is that right? I don't know. That's summer. That's good summer <laughs> exercise, that one. But, yeah. Um, so what I was thinking of there is when you talk, mentioned about vitamin D being uh, as important for muscle as bone, I, I'd just like to put a point in for our listeners. And Professor Michael Hollick made this point, and it's a way in which research can give you exactly the wrong message. So for instance, a high amount of vitamin D increases falls. Now, M- Michael Hollick explains this. He says, well, hang on, if they're vitamin D deficient and they're going to take a high amount of vitamin D, it works on bones very slowly, but it works on muscles extremely quickly. And so what happens is these people have still got frail bones. They get up because their muscles have just been re-energized and, of course, they fall over and break something. So oh. so it's a, it's a salient point, isn't it, that, that we, again, we really should be looking at prevention, obviously, but we yep. really should be intervening early. Well, the other thing about vitamin D also, as you would know, you've done a lot of work in vitamin D areas, it's like related to that area of uh, non-specific pain, if you know what I mean. Mm. And um, often in, in people as they age, if they get things like you know, non-specific pain, that can somehow limit their ability or their wish to exercise. And just want to point out for a lot of people who have osteoarthritis, for example, that you know in the knee is that resistance training is probably one of the best things you can do yes. for it, though people would be reluctant to do it, yes. uh, thinking it's going to hurt them, if you know what I mean. Mm. But you really need to build that muscle up around the, in the, that quad area again, if you know what I mean, in the legs. So the old ad- so. adage of move it or lose it still prevails. 
Yeah, absolutely. So any, anything that you know, forces people to be, uh, and we know even with bed rest, I mean, you know, the, the modern thinking, and when I say modern, been around for a while, is to get people mobile as quickly as they can once they're in hospital. That's probably the best advice you can get because the longer that you are bedridden, and even some studies have shown even really short periods of time, just like a week being in bed, can uh, result in profound muscle and mm. strength loss. What I mean, yeah. so and it can be hard to get back. It's, they they find sometimes months later they haven't fully recovered even once they're they're up. So wow, it's, yeah. So you really do need to be moving as uh, being mobile is a good thing. What about uh, the different types of protein, plant versus animal, for instance? You know, when we're talking um, about the, yeah. the let, let's say the I mean, if you wanted to just look at nitrogen, but um, nitrogen balance, but um. um Lauren Cordain's attributes regarding um, what we see, we're talking about milk. Uh, you know, he's not a fan of milk at all, saying that you've got a high amount of calcium, but you've also got a high amount of phosphate, which leads to calcium. So you're putting it in and taking it out. Whereas if you don't have milk, um, the calcium is retained. Um, I'm interested also in the alkalinity aspect, which is a, it's been a naturopathic concept that's prevailed, but I have issues in where we're measuring it. We can have a whole thing about session on that. But um, just to say, yeah, with protein, the studies do show that things like whey protein, you know, are, are probably when I say superior to, to, to soy and other things, um, it, you know, on a chronic, if you're year in, year out, is it going to, what's, what's the difference going to be? Possibly marginal, but it is better, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and that comes back to the relationship probably to the branch change of the leucine being the mTOR, you know, the, the real driver of the muscle protein synthesis kind of area. Yep. But um, if you're clearly, if you're vegetarian, you want to take soy or pea protein or whatever, that would be fine in, in terms of all other things that you were doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a, you know, they use whatever protein source they want, but I'd say, you know, the, the ones with the higher biological value, clearly the egg and the, the whey, if, you, if you're not vegetarian, go for those. That's fine. Yeah. I used to think it was yeah. hilarious when um, um, the bodybuilders that used to come into the place where I worked and and most of them would use whey of the varying types, whey protein, consolate, isolate, blah, 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 concentrate, isolate. Um, but once in a blue moon, you would get a meathead coming in and forgive me for doing the poor accent, but he would go, where is my egg protein? <laughs> and, and they egg would protein. egg protein, and they would be the ones going for the egg protein. But it would be the dusty one can, single can in the corner that was nearly out of date, <laughs> right. because yeah. it tastes rubbish. <laughs> eat, right. e eat eggs yeah, for goodness' it. sake. <laughs> yeah, well, they, I think that's the the issue. Um, you know, for elderly people is if you're getting them protein is that thing that they, they're not going to walk in and walk out with you know a, a bottle of uh, mega blaster nitro no. killer kind of Die. that's just fit them but also protein supplements sometimes in elderly people because they're so satiating mm. they'll probably they may just compensate at other periods of the day if you know what i mean yeah um so the, the theory at the moment is the optimal protein intake really should be about 20 20 25 grams of protein per meal mm -hmm rather than, you know, like tea and toast for breakfast, cheese and salad for lunch, and then a whopping big steak for dinner. Yeah. That's, they, some people, that's not the optimal way, so spread it out, but you need that ah. minimal 20, 25 grams per me meal to do it. You know what? Um, I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just the wrong types of foods that we tend to choose, but we tend to choose the wrong types of foods at the wrong time mm. of day. That's a very salient point. There's some work around that versus, um, you know, having little bits of protein, throughout the day. Yep. Now, the other thing, there's just I'd point out there's been an interesting uh, trial done on, on collagen, 
And uh, for many people, you know, collagen is used, you know, beauty products, you know, collagen drinks for skin and all that kind of thing. But there, there is another collagen out uh, trial being done. It's published in the British Journal of Nutrition late last year where 15 grams a day um, in elderly men increased strength and muscle, uh, which is really interesting because the and to bring it, I'll just resolve that around to vitamin D as well because some trials of um, protein supplements and that they can sometimes see an increase in muscle mass but not in strength, if you know what I mean. Yeah, which is interesting. And then yeah. uh, just very quickly, there was one study done in a um, it's like a mixture of protein and, and other amino acids, and they did it for a whole year, which is a great study with resistance training. And when they published it, they said increase in muscle mass, no increase in strength. They went back and then wow. they republished about a year later and they said, look, when we went back and had a look at the vitamin D levels, yep. those who had adequate vitamin D levels got muscle ma- mass and strength. Those who didn't have the uh, adequate vitamin D just got muscle but no strength. Wow. Wait. So, yeah, so, so it comes around to, um, and I often think that the vitamin, if they're not assessing vitamin D in a lot of these trials, it's probably a huge confounding factor. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing what we know about the omega threes, probably the same as well, actually as well. So, um, but the collagen one's interesting. It's only fifteen grams a day, once a day. That's all I had to take. And the source was from what? Um, bovine, bovine, bovine collagen. collagen. They're all different. Um, if, as you know, there's probably lots of different brands on the market. So when you're taking, you're talking bovine cartilage extract. Yeah, it's uh, the peptides. So that's the what they call collagen peptides. Okay. So this particular, I think it's a, it's a Jolita product. Um, it's just a, like it's not a, uh, a trade. It's not a, um, a a market brand name. It's like a, a company that produces it yeah. for other companies to sell. But um, this particular product is their their bovine gelatin. In this particular case, is different from other bo- uh, other gelatins from whether from pig or fish due to the peptide ratios and whatever. I'm right. not that much across it, but. Just to say, in this in this trial, it seemed to work pretty well at only 15 grams a day, which is a small dose, and it's pretty tasteless, if you know what I mean. So, and, and is that something that practitioners can acquire in Australia? Um, I think they should shortly, I would think. The trade name in this particular paper was Body Balance. Um, that was from Jolita. Now, I think they're looking to try and op- to on-sell it to, to companies in Australia to use. So hopefully it will be. Um, available in Australia, cool. Um, in the retail market, so okay. That would be good. Yeah, so absolutely. I think that's, it's a good option for elderly people to get into. Yeah. So you you mentioned earlier, you know, the the importance of the inflammatory signals, and you mentioned fish oil, but there's so many other things out there that are anti-inflammatory mm. uh, that don't have the deleterious effects that things like NSAIDs do. Um, notwithstanding that aspirin does appear to have some long-term benefits on reducing um, cancer risk. But um, um, what sort of other things should we be looking at to dampen these inflammatory signals that ev- that worsen well, think, the sarcopenic sort of issue? Yeah, that Mediterranean diet. Is, is, you know, we know that if you follow a good Mediterranean diet with you know, your extra olive, uh, extra olive, extra virgin olive oil, yeah, um, and things like that, and also, uh, which is good, but it's also that omega-3, omega-6 ratio, so you can get your omega-6 ratio down, if you know what I mean, but just not using uh, crappy vegetable oils. Yes. Um, the other thing, um, just interesting, there has been one sort of observational work done showing that those people who take NZs are a lot less likely to get sarcopenia. Now, that work needs to be followed up. I'm just saying that's an observation. It's not an intervention study by any means. Um, but it is very interesting. But the 
the flip to that is that I think is that those who take long-term NZs have poorer cognition. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, generally speaking, you know, the lower the inflammation, the better the cognition. But I, in just my quick reading of this um, a couple of days ago, um, that NZs don't don't seem to be associated with a decrease in, in cognitive decline. And, and all so, NZs. Yeah, that, is, that is an interesting point. So anti-inflammatories. Well, the other thing about it is just your things like your curcumins, uh, things like that as well. But, and the reason is is that when people age, and I'm, you know, I'm, to, I'm in my 50s, I'll tell you exactly what I am, but um, it's that when you're training, it's a recovery time, which is absolutely crucial. Yeah. So anything we can do to help um, increase the efficiency of the recovery time, because really it's the muscle remodeling goes on when you're not in the gym, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So you just can't go five times a week. And it's, it actually, sometimes it's better to have a longer recovery time so your, your muscles do recover properly, particularly as you're aging. And these things that can actually help, it could be things like your curcumins and, and other things as well, natural anti-inflammatory agents which actually help um, to some degree with muscle recovery could be quite good. But and we need to do studies in that area, definitely. Sure. Just to add to your point about NSAIDs and cognition, um, and all NSAIDs carry uh, uh, stratified uh, cardiovascular risk, depending on which type they are. Right. But all of yep. them are in that risk category. Um, so where do we go from here? What, you know, we're an aging population. What, what, We've said, you know, we should be looking at grip strength. We're looking at these sort of issues with flexibility earlier. Should be making sure that our patients have a diet. But that's once we're intervening. How do we how do we turn this around? You know, what sort of message should we be sending? Well, I'll give you an insight. Um, some some years ago, we actually did a focus group at the company I work for, um, talking about muscles and aging yeah. in people. And the, the people said it absolutely was one of the things that they never seen anything resonate with people so well. In fact, some people said, I'm going to see my doctor tomorrow and get, you know, tell him. And some people said, we don't believe what you're saying because my doctor's never talked to me about how why muscles are important when I'm aging. Yeah. And I think really it's an education thing across health professionals for a start. Yeah. So everyone is fixated um, about body weight and all that kind of thing. And there are good reasons, particularly, you know, that early middle age, you know, you know people overweight, large waist circumference, definitely not a good thing. But as they're getting older, those people older, we, we really got to focus on muscle. And a key question could be just you know, how physically active are you? Are you exercising? Because mm. if they're not exercising, and the research seems to show all that work by Stephen Blair and those that regardless what BMI you are, if you're physically active and engaged in, in exercise, it can have a, a major impact on your risk factors anyway, if you know what I mean. So, uh, so, so a lot of... a key question to people I'd be saying in their 30s and 40s and 50s, are you physically... Uh, and also, Andrew, as you know, we're all bound to our desks in front of computers. Yes. This is well, where I was going to go. Yeah, that's that anti-physical activity. So it actually can actually impact even on your exercise. So you might be exercising, but if your bum's on the seat 10 hours a day and you're not moving, yeah. it's actually going to you know, counteract some of that exercise that you're doing anyway. So. Lise Alshala pointed uh, out that, that or made that point with regards to exercise because she said, I thought I was doing exercise because I'd do my morning exercise, I'd go for a walk, but then I would be bound to the desk for the rest of the day. I was sitting for more than eight hours. And mm. so what... What should we be doing with regards to physical activity and how much is adequate? Because a lot of people will say, oh, I, you know, I, I exercise. I, I, I walk down the shops to get my pack of beer and I carry it home. So that's resistant exercise. So, you know, so what should we be, yeah, what should we be looking at? What is actually good, a good amount of exercise and what type? 
just doing things like walking um, to up to shop. We we know all that's good, but yep. that's not exercise, which as we get older, in some ways, which is going to counteract the um, the muscle loss, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So if you're walking up hills and you've you know, got weights on and you're doing all that, that's great. But we do need seem to, as we're getting older, to do structured exercise. Now, the good thing is, um, you're probably your listeners would be aware of, you know, this high intensity um, exercise. Yep. So. Yep. You can do five minutes a week, which is you know, comparative to half an hour of you know longer endurance exercise. Um, resistance training, you know, it could be as little as you know, two sessions a week, if you know what I mean. That's really interesting stuff, and I'm really interested in this. Um, oh, gosh, I've forgotten his name, Dr. Michael Mosley? Michael Mosley, yeah. yeah. Dr. Michael Mosley. So, um, but wasn't he talking about that research and it was dependent on a gene, uh, like a phenotype? Well, that, that, see, that's the other interesting thing. We talk about people doing exercise. Clearly, um, as a child and as a, an adolescent, I'm, I'm a, I was a sprinter, I'm not long-distance runner. So for me, I've never found just going out, trying to get fit by running long has never worked Boring, yeah. Yeah, well, no, it's just I just never get anywhere. I get to a certain point and I just plateau. But if I go to the gym and work out resistance training and do sprint training, I get fit that way. Then I can do my endurance training. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah, so we have to match um, the type of exercise to the person, clearly what they like to do, mm. you know what I mean? Yes. Um, but just, even just having a round of golf going in for a walk, that's great, but it's not what you'd call, it's physical activity, but it's not necessarily exercise, if yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, So for people who'd like to do that, and I always say, if you want to keep playing golf in your 70s and 80s and 90s and whatever, if you do resistance training, you, you will be able to do that, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Golf in itself probably is not going to be enough. So, I mean, all those you know, professional got, they're all training, if you know what I mean, working out and training. Yeah, they're not getting fit from the golf. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're, they're getting fit to play golf, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, otherwise um, we'd have yeah. extremely fit pharmacists all over the country. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, any form of, I mean, I think that's, the, you know, it has to be physical activity, which is pleasurable to people, uh, as something which is clearly nowadays time effective. Uh, and I think that's the one thing about that high-intensity training that even though it hurts, people seem to prefer to do something which is quick and sharp, even though it hurts, yep. rather than you know, on a treadmill or you know, working out for long periods of time. And you can do the same with muscle trainer resistance training as well. If you're going, And if you do have chronic, chronic disease, you can refer on to physios or exercise physiologists to get the right advice. But you know, there's a whole, you know, that whole exercise, how you do resistance training, there's a whole, you know, genre, there's multiple genres of, of what is the best way to do it, yeah. um, other than to say, you know, that we need to be looking just not at muscle mass, hypertrophy, but it's the power strength that we really need to be focusing on, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but in all cases, they should be guided by somebody who's well-versed in that. Yeah, I mean, the older that you get, I mean, as you're younger, you can go into the gym, you know, people just go in, they throw a few weights around after seeing the, um, uh, you know, a trainer or something like that. Mm. But clearly, if you're in, in your 60s or 70s and you have, um, you may have osteoarthritis, you may have diabetes, whatever, you definitely need to get professional advice. Um, and I think even in Australia, over the age of 40 for males or something, 45, you actually should get a doctor's clearance before you go out and exercise. I think it might be 50, 55 for women. Yep. So you should, if you haven't done it for quite a while, you just need to go back and speak to the doctor and he'll you know, check your heart out and do whatever and, and give you that kind of clearance. But yeah, but there's really, as we're saying with that work by Professor Fair Trani Singh, you know, that you know, there is no age, age limit or barrier really to doing resistance training in particular. 
and people just need to be guided how to do it. Loved your work. That, that's really interesting stuff that you brought up there. And, and I think it, I mean, it's pertinent for everybody. Every single patient walking into every single clinic is likely to have some sort of issue with this. Um, as they age, you know, it, that's just our lifestyle now. And I just think it's so important to be aware of these issues that people will experience later and for clinicians to be aware that they can do simple things now to keep them on track. So well done. Yeah, thank you. So Chris, thank you so much for taking us through not just what sarcopenia is, but also how it affects us and, and what we can do to, to thwart its um, ongoing effects. I really appreciate your, your work in this area and also you bringing it to the public's attention. Well done. Okay, well, thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, Please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.